Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. It's the concrete jungle where dreams are made of. Yes, the Big Apple. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television. And of course, I'm talking about New York City. Among its many well-known features, you can add a thriving venture capital scene. In this episode, we talk with three New York-based investors, Eric Hippo of Lara Hippo, Naveen Savadurai of Expat, and Catherine Kit Ulrich of Firstmark Capital. Stay tuned as we discuss why New York is a hell of a town for entrepreneurship. Um, we have three investors here from the New York startup scene, each at different stages of their career and representing different approaches. So it's going to be a great conversation tonight. Eric Hippo is the veteran, of course. When he was at SoftBank, he invested in Yahoo, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed. Uh, Catherine Ulrich just moved to the investing side after being an operator for 12 years. Uh, Karen mentioned Weight Watchers and Shutterstock. And... Just Naveen, no last name needed, um, a partner at Expa, which is a four-year-old startup studio, and he'll explain what that means. You probably know Naveen's former company because he co-founded Foursquare. So let's get started. All three of you are based in New York. Um, Catherine, let's start with you because when Firstmark was founded in 2008 as a New York and East Coast-centric firm, people weren't sure that it would work. So how has it evolved? Um, I think it's interesting because both from the first mark perspective and then my perspective being a product person here in New York, we kind of saw the same thing unfold. So at the time that first mark started, it was not known that you could start a New York centric VC firm and honestly be successful. Um, that was our bet was that New York was going to grow more and more as a tech ecosystem. And I think as you heard from Karen, the stat statistics now prove that out um, with the number of amazing exits that we've seen in the last couple of years. Uh, for me personally, it was interesting because when I became a product leader here in New York, um, my background actually before I jumped into product was uh, I led FP&A and strategy teams. Uh, and I made this leap into the product and was asked to do a job. And at the time, I said, great, I will take a swing at product. I don't really know what that is. And I tried to reach out to the product leaders in New York. And honestly, there were none. Um, I was trying to find the best product leaders in the tech space. Uh, and it forced me to go and create some great mentors on the West Coast. But so I was here in the early days when that function didn't exist. And now everywhere you turn, there's a ton of great product talent and UX talent and tech talent in New York. But I feel like I've seen that rise. Um, and we're really excited because I think Obviously, a number of these great exits mean that great people are now leaving the exits, going on and starting their own companies, and it's just a really exciting time to be in this ecosystem here. Erica, talk a little bit about how New York differs from Silicon Valley. Where is it better than Silicon Valley? What does it do better? Where is it lacking and perhaps needs to make up ground? Well, one of the areas where it's much better is what Karen mentioned, which is it's a very, still today, and I hope you'll stay that way, it's a very collaborative community. We literally... Uh, all work with each other. Um, with it, there's no term sheet wars. There's no valuation kind of things going on. Um, you, you know, people t tend to want to team up. Uh, it's not a very big community from a, from an investor point of view, compa certainly compared to the West Coast. Right. Um, so, um, and everybody seems to have found their, their space and their, what they really like to do and what they're good at. So that's one thing. The second thing is, <clears throat> you know, the, the companies that we invested in New York uh, tend to be um, kind of more on the, the service application 
building whatever you can build on top uh, on top of platforms, existing, uh, platforms. existing platforms. So we're we're not, um, you know, uh, maybe Cornell uh, will change that. Uh, Cornell Technion will change that. But we're not we're not reinventing the infrastructure of the internet. Um, and we're not doing the next generation of uh, storage devices. Uh, so as a result, um, they, they, we, we tend to invest in pretty much anything that New York is good at, including all the different domains. Pretty much every industry, every sector of the economy you can think of is represented here in New York. So we tend to do very diversified uh, type of investments. Right. You'll definitely see media and fintech up there, though, given that this is New York. Um, Naveen, let's talk about what you're doing right now, because you're trying to carve out the future of VC. Explain to us what XPi is, because it's not a VC in the traditional sense, is it? No. Um, we, we talk about ourselves as a uh, startup studio. So it's almost like a movie studio where you, know, uh, you get a bunch of people together, you get capital from a bunch of producers, you try to pick and decide what movies to launch at what point. Uh, you know, go get your writer, put all these things together. You put a team together and you release a couple of movies a year, uh, either small productions or, or, or big budget productions. So uh, that's why we call ourselves a studio. We're like that for the startup world. There are a lot of other studios out there, actually, going back all the way to the mid-'90s. The, the first one that I probably is well-known is uh, a firm called Idea Lab out in LA. Um, and since then, there have been numerous others. There's another one here in New York that's very famous called Betaworks. And so when we came out of our previous companies, so when I came out of Foursquare and uh, my partners in Expa came out of uh, founding their companies and wanting to actually go out there and build something else again, we decided we didn't want to just go write checks and take pitches. And you know, I, don't, I didn't think we'd just be good at that by itself. And so we said, why don't we actually go try other ideas? There is a lot more out there just at the intersection of software and the web or software and mobile, so we're not doing anything in hardware and things that we don't know anything about. Uh, and we're all computer scientists. We've all built, we've all kind of coded our own things in the past, we've all put our teams together. We're good at all of those things. So to us, the studio is really bringing the best of all of what we think we're good at doing with a little bit of money that we raise behind the scenes and then applying it on various problems and hopefully making them into successful companies. And Expo is based both in San Francisco and in New York. So what kinds of ideas or people are you exposed to by being in New York that you may not get in Silicon Valley? Um, we, yeah, so we're four years old. And we, we've been around since early 2014 on both coasts, actually, uh, since the very beginning. In New York, I would say, I would say on both coasts, because we've all already founded companies in the past, we have a really amazing alumni network. I always talk about that. Uh, you know, the, the Foursquare Mafia, akin to the, the PayPal Mafia and things like that in the, in the old days. Um, so I always think that a lot of our ideas are actually uh, coming in from our network. And the stronger our network is, and hopefully because of Expo, that continues to grow. And as we start companies and exit them in the future, that continues to be a bigger and bigger thing. I think a lot of that stuff that, that we see just are just ideas we talk about at dinner and at the office and, you know, in, in other, other meetings and pitch meetings and things like that. Uh, in New York, I will say a lot of the ideas are definitely in the media space on the front end of consumer. Uh, so we have ideas at the intersection of shopping and mobile. We have ideas uh, like reserve in the restaurant space. How do we rethink table management? Why is Open Table the only kind of player in the space? Uh, still after 14 or 15 years, or however long that is. Um, we have an idea in the fintech space here in New York called Current that I've been working on for the last three years. Uh, it's a smart debit card for teenage kids so that families can actually help them save, spend, and, and uh, learn about giving money uh, as, as, uh, as they grow older. So I, I would say in New York, we probably just really play well into 
what New York is good at, you know, media, going out, you know, uh, being more social, fintech, and again, I think that's also network-driven network a little bit. The one might come back to build something. One thing you said that struck me was we don't invest in hardware, we invest in what we know. And Eric, this is something that you've talked about as well before. Um, when it comes to investment criteria, you say there are three questions you need to ask before considering an early-stage investment. Is it the right team? Is it the right idea? And is the timing right? This sounds like it's part art, part science. How much of this is gut-driven versus um, informed by your experience? Yeah, it, it is part art and part science. The, you know, we're early stage investors. Our first investment is, is uh, always in the seed round. We now have enough. We have two funds, so we can follow the, um, the, uh, the, the full funding cycle all the way to the end. So we do make late stage investments, but at the beginning, we're always uh, early stage. So when you're, when you're doing a, um, uh, an early stage investment, you ask for the usual things, you know, the business plan, the operating plan, uh, you know, all these numbers, but none of, the, none of that really makes a ton of sense, mm -hmm. except how the founders think the business is going to evolve. The numbers by, by themselves are uh, kind of invented. Um, so you really have to rely on, uh, one is, as you mentioned, the idea. Is this a really big idea? Is this an idea that's going to take over the world, not just going to be applicable in, in, in your neighborhood or in, in New York? It's going to be big. Uh, timing. Is is not something that you can you can uh, study. You know, timing is it comes with experience. It comes with being in the market. Um, if you're too early, uh, it might be the best idea in the world. It's just not going to work. Right. You're, you're going to run out of money. And if it's too late, you're going to be a me too company. So you're looking for kind of that perfect timing. Um, sometimes you miss. Hopefully you are successful more than you miss. But lastly, and really where the the, the bulk of the time is spent is on the team. Uh, who are who are they? Why do they think they can do this? Uh, is this something that they feel uh, viscerally, not not just a kind of a, a school project, an MBA type project? It's got to be something that they feel is really important in their life. It's going to change their life before it changes everybody else's lives. So if you put all of that together, and you form some sort of a opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, but but a lot of it is uh, is art and not science. And you cite. Casper, the mattress company, as an example of one that fulfilled all three. Well, Casper, we had, in fact, uh, incubated a person uh, at Lara Hippo who uh, was very interested in the mattress business. He, he turned out not to be interested or not, not to be the right person. Uh, so we went looking for a team. Mm. Uh, and we, we thought the, the mattress business was ripe for disruption, as it was. We went looking for a team, got lucky to find uh, you know, Phil Krim and and his colleagues, and, um, and they've done very, very well. Catherine, I want to bring you into this conversation because you switched from being an operator to an investor last year. Talk about how it's different being a mentor to, as a VC as opposed to being uh, an executive at a company, at, at Shutterstock, at Weight Watchers. Um, yeah, I guess you know one way that I absorbed it was um, uh, when you learn to be a great manager, I think this is a great example. You have to be just like being a great manager, you have to be a great investor. So what do I mean by that? Plenty of people have managers who are uh, micromanagers, people that get in the weeds and can't think bigger. Plenty of people um, have managers that focus more on control versus context. So I had already learned on my operating side how to not be that, how to um, lead teams by giving a lot of context and not exerting a lot of control, um, by understanding the power of uh, trying to influence people in what I might think is the right direction. You know, I think a great example when you're leading product and tech teams at scale is 
if the most senior person is um, shooting down ideas or not allowing people to test, even by the way, if I knew that test might fail. So just because I've seen two other teams try it, I'm pretty sure that that's not gonna work. Um, I have to actually believe unless there's some big financial impact or danger to doing it that I'm way better off letting the team test that and learn that on their own because it's about um, giving accountability down to the team. So you just translate that into the VC side and I guess my take on it is it is, it is a completely a game of influence, right? You don't even have the control that you might have as a, as a manager on a team. Um, so even more the right context and relationship building that you have as a great operator applies into the VC side. Um, but I think, you know, speaking about how that relates into making great investments, um, that's part of the investment criteria. I think to your point, Eric, you know, you can look at all the numbers in the business plan, but, you know, we're early stage Series A investments. And so, I mean, I know from laying out product roadmaps, you can lay out a roadmap, you can lay out the business plan, and it almost never falls out the way that you lay it out. So it really is about the person's ability to just to change us and act as a team. And, and that is something that you're doing every single day as an operator, and, and you just learn that skill and that muscle. And now I'm just applying that as an investor. And problem solving doesn't actually change all that much uh, from an investment point of view as opposed to an operator point of view. Yeah, I think, I mean, I am a big believer it's just the greatest skill you can get is your ability to problem solve. I mean, I think the example that applies, and particularly an investor, is um, you you will go through ups and downs, whether you're running an invest, uh, business or you're on the investor side. The ability to stay calm through the ups and downs and know that you will turn the corner, I think, is uh, the markings of a great boss and manager at scale and is the markings of a great investor. Um, when someone is calling me in the middle of the night because the site's down or I haven't had this yet with a founder because I'm nine months in, but is uh, concerned about some part of their business, I want to be the person you can be calm and help them think through that in a calm way. And that's no different from being a great boss to being a great investor. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd say is that I've been on the side of the table where I've gone into boardrooms and thought, how can I get out of this meeting as quickly as possible? Uh, and then I've been on the other side where I've thought, how do I bring my biggest challenges and have this great group of smart people help me answer them? And so having been on the other side of the table, um, you know, I hope to be that great person that's helping to solve the great challenges. Yeah, you can understand the, the communication needs a little bit more uh, personally, right? Yeah. Naveen, uh, you co-founded Foursquare in 2008-2009. You left the company in 2012. Talk about how that experience has helped you or informed the way that you advise uh, founders to grow their company, to communicate with their team, to, to realize their vision. Yeah, Foursquare was a very unique New York story. I think we uh, we timed it perfectly. I think a lot of a lot of the times when you hit it really big, you have the right idea at the right time, and the market's just ready for it. And I think even and, and the platform also was ready for it. Right, iPhone had just come out. We just launched uh, shortly after it came out, and it was able to be programmed. Um, local and social was an interesting thing, and I think people were ready for it. So I think my biggest takeaway there is that not only did I see the whole life cycle of the company, but I also got a chance to see it both at scale, but also to see something move so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it sounds like an, it, it's, it's such an easy thing to say here, having been a part of it, because oftentimes when you read about big companies, it's only the big companies you read about in the news. But being in the driver's seat of such a thing uh, is a very unique experience, like a one in a thousand. You learn much more quickly, you make mistakes much more quickly, and, and hopefully learn from them. Um, being being at uh, running at like a very high pressure kind of uh, space actually allows you to like it, yeah it's like life and death decisions every day all the time so I think I've learned a lot more because of that uh, as compared to previous companies that I've been a part of uh, Foursquare is actually the third startup that I was a part of 
and the fifth tech company that I'd been a part of. Um, and so at the time that, it, that I actually started it. So that experience actually was, it, it's like, it's indescribable because it actually taught me so much about um, people things. It taught me so much about uh, decision making, how you actually weigh different uh, data inputs and how do you actually communicate that to the team? How do you actually get together and talk, talk through all these various, uh, various issues? Uh, and how you actually prepare yourself as an organization or as a as a culture and as a team. So I think that's my biggest thing. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were telling me that at Expat you spend three quarters of your time operating on the companies or operating the company. So you're as much an operator as you are an investor. Um, and that each partner at Expat, there are five, right, um, can devote their personal attention or resources to uh, founders based on their area of expertise. So what what is your area of expertise and how are you applying that? Yeah, we all spend we all spend about three fourths of our time on one or two companies inside of Expa, and the other twenty five percent of time kind of helping each other run the studio, helping each other with all of the various investments and companies we've started internally. Uh, and uh, I actually spend a lot of my time trying to uh, do the things that I think I'm really good at, which is product and design, and uh, getting into the weeds on how users are using the product, uh, gathering feedback, iterating on that, making the thing that customers actually want that users actually want, depending on what the product is. Because if we don't get that right, none of the other stuff really matters. So I would say that's what I'm probably most most interested in, probably the best at. And so that's where I try to focus my time. Catherine, let's talk a little bit, a little bit about the investment trends you're spotting in, in your work at Firstmark. You see 50 pitches a month, is that right? Yeah, if not more. If not more. And that doesn't include emails? That's, no. <laughs> and how many do you execute on? Um, two to three a year. Okay, um, that's, a, that's a lot. So let's talk about some of the trends that you've noticed. Uh, health and wellness, for instance, and fitness. And Karen was talking about behavioral change as an area that you've spent a lot of time on because of your uh, experience at Weight Watchers. How do those dovetail? And, and are you a little skeptical when you, when you hear companies and founders come up to you and say, yeah, I've got this great idea and this is how it's going to work because people really need this? Yeah, I guess I'd say... Um well, let me dial back for one second. So two of the themes I see a lot of and I like from a product perspective are healthcare and real estate, actually. The reason I like those two is because I think they're tough spaces where the incentives in the space are not aligned with consumers. Um, and I like that as a product person because I think when, uh, when businesses' incentives aren't fully aligned with consumers, it means there's a lot of problems, which means there's a lot of solutions, which means there's opportunity for new startups. In the healthcare space, it's a space I am deeply passionate about. Um, being at Weight Watchers for a number of years and then just personally passionate about the space. I think the hard part is that it is it is behavior change. So fundamentally, um, anything behavior change where consumers want the outcome but they don't really want to take the steps to get there is hard. What That's like weight loss, that's like uh, saving money, that's like uh, stopping your digital addiction. So um, those are just fundamental, very difficult behaviors to change. So I, I love the space. Um, my first investment that I make was a Series A that is in the healthcare space that I f believe in and I'm really excited about. But I would say I see a number of startups that maybe um, discount the, how difficult it is to change behavior. Um, and I get that's probably my lens, having studied it for a, a period of time. Um, but um, what I would say on that is when you see a startup that is very thoughtful about their approach, it really stands out. Um, I've seen a couple things in the fintech space that are, I think are interesting in terms of helping people save money. Um, I think that's a fascinating space. But that's kind of what gets me excited is when someone is taking that edge on it. Um, yeah. How do you guide them back, though, when they're talking about behavior change and, and building in all these different assumptions that you know from experience is, is not easy to execute on? Um, 
Well, that's probably one more of style. I guess my style being an operator is if I see someone who there's something I fundamentally don't think is going to work in their business, um, I tell them. Uh, I don't. I, in some VCs, that's not entirely common. Um, but my belief is that if I see a problem in someone's business, or from my experience, I think they're going to hit a roadblock. Uh, I'd rather tell them um, and tell them that may be a reason why I'm hesitant to invest, uh, and then hope that they either prove me wrong or they appreciate the fact that I took the honest advice. Um, but this, uh, you know, I was lucky at Weight Watchers to study a ton around. Uh, behavioral insights and behavioral economics, and I love that field, and there's great professors who have done this that I got to spend a ton of time with. Um, but there's a very different thing of being studying it academically and then putting it into practice. Um, and I find that those tweaks are something that I can offer great advice to companies that are tackling it. Eric, what about you? What are you seeing um, in terms of investment trends? I know that you guys have invested in cannabis, for instance, but in the ecosystem around it rather than companies that, that grow it, that touch it directly. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, our three main themes are enterprise software. New York has a lot of enterprise software. It's actually about half the portfolio. And then the next big batch is direct-to-consumer commerce. We have, uh, I think we have the biggest cluster of companies. We have about 35 companies that sell something direct. Um, and that trend continues. And then media, you mentioned. But media, New York obviously is the center of media. But media is only it's less than 10% of our portfolio. We're very selective. So then, so those themes have been you know, con consistent now for a few years. But there are things that are emerging. Um, cannabis is, is a huge market that's uh, developing from, um, you know, what used to be the legal cannabis business, obviously. There used to be, a few years ago, nothing, and it's, it's going to be about $20 billion uh, in 2021, $50 billion later. Uh, because it's still banned at the federal level, we, we made a decision to only invest in... Um, um, it to invest in companies that do not touch the product. So we don't invest in brands. We don't invest in people who process cannabis. Uh, but we do. There's a bunch of software companies. Uh, we, we just invested in the, uh, the, the largest um, uh, uh, staff uh, placement agency in cannabis. It would, the, the cannabis world is hiring hundreds and thousands of people. And how, where do you find them? And some of them have to be licensed, et cetera. Uh, so that's of big interest to us. Hardware is not our specialty, but there is a nascent hardware community here in New York that uh, we, we were early investors in MakerBot, the 3D printer company. Out of that community uh, came out a, a number of people who use uh, 3D printed parts um, uh, to build robots. Mm -hmm. So the, the, uh, to me, robotics reminds me of the, uh, the mainframe days where you used to have IBM and Burroughs and Univac. Uh, where computers would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and we're very, in robots, very, if you look at the robotic arms in the other industry, each one of these robots costs $100,000, $150,000. Very hard to program. And very rapidly, we're going down to robots that cost $5,000, $10,000, that are incredibly flexible, uh, can, can do perform a variety of different tasks. And that world is, um, is com compressing very rapidly. There is a community of those people here in New York. Um, healthcare um, uh, is the software part of healthcare is uh, very enticing. There's a lot that, particularly if it touches consumers, the problem with healthcare is that it's a, um, uh, a a bunch of monopolies controlled by the government. So it's very difficult to um, to pierce through. But hopefully, a lot of money can be saved in, uh, saved in healthcare. 
billions of dollars can be saved in healthcare starting tomorrow if you allow the technology industry to have a free hand at it. Yeah, that's a problem that's desperately in need of, of a solution. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm glad you mentioned machine learning and AI because, Catherine, this is something that we had talked about earlier, that this is kind of an investment trend that can be overplayed. A lot of people use it as a buzzword uh, when the actual product is not machine learning or, or AI. Yeah, I mean, I, um, so for a little bit of context at Shutterstock, we built out a computer vision ML team, um, specifically computer vision though for the images and video we are creating. So I guess what I believe is as a product person, people can use AI and ML and throughout that term, I think that they use it a lot when really what they're talking about is just analytics. So the term is just buzzy in that nature in terms of actually the underlying tech that people are deploying. The other thing I believe when you throw out a tech term like that is that I see a number of businesses that then don't get close enough to the end customer problem. Um, and as a product person, that's what I care about. So do they really know the customer segment they're going after? Do they really know the product that they're solving? And then uniquely for that product, they're deploying uh, either really AI or ML or computer vision for a cause. That's kind of what I like to suss out. Um, I, I, I'm wired this way being a product person, but I do believe the great products come from knowing your customer segment and knowing their problems really intimately um, and understanding it well. Um, and as a product person doing any pitches that I get, that's usually what I'm poking at. Um, in fact, I often get the like, hey, you don't ask the typical VC questions. I'm like, what okay. I, I don't know because I haven't only been one for nine months. <laughs> uh, but I guess I guess I mean I, I tend to actually jokingly cram a ton of uh, typical VC questions in the last like 15 minutes of the conversation, <laughs> which is a lot about metrics and where are you going and uh, financials, which is good to get. But also you're talking super early days, so I care more about how much you've actually understood your customer segments and it's being a product person, you can kind of tell whether someone has spent time interview, interviewing their customers talking face to face. They will naturally bring up quotes that you can tell are not made up ones. And so there's an authenticity to that. And I find that a lot of the AI and ML companies maybe don't have that. Um, they're just not thinking about it at that level. Naveen, we were talking earlier about um, how there's a whole suite of companies that have grown out of people's usage of Instagram, of Facebook. You call them brand marketing companies that exist because they're on a platform, but they don't really seem to solve a problem. They're just there and, and kind of almost parasitic in some ways. Uh, yeah, I think we, we were talking about um, uh, things that I'm not interested in. I think <laughs> yes, things, things that, that we're avoid. not interested in as, as, as experts of. I think uh, trends that interest us right now, uh, about a third of the companies that we built internally of the 12 studio companies are actually tools that we built to help us build other companies. So one is a data analytics company that we built that's totally open source. It's called Metabase. We built it internally and gave it to the world. and. Now all of our teams use it to, you know, uh, simple analytics, but also just like over time business insights and stuff. We have another one in the knowledge management and document management space called Input. So we try to build for ourselves, and uh, we try to build things where software, because we're software people, where software actually 10x is something. You know, productivity, your ability to like acquire customers, your ability to like you know write better code, whatever that is. And I think when we were talking, I, I, I was speaking about Instagram because every day there seems to be like a new like clothing brand or something on Instagram. In fact, all the icons and everything even look the same. It's like a white, white text, sorry, white, white background and black text, and they all look the same. I don't even know. It's just like some brand that sits on top of some factory in China, basically. And there is really no software. There's really nothing else that's 10xing it. It's not like they figured out, you know, through the use of a celebrity or through some other acquisition channel or through some technical. Uh, kind of improvement in the clothing that's actually making something different. It's just playing on really solely one platform, and they're beholden to this thing, Instagram and Facebook, 
to actually sell something else. And uh, if that's if that gets taken away, then there is no technology really behind it. And I think that's 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 what I was saying is. It's, it doesn't excite me. It's not something that we're actually ever going to look into. Yeah. It goes back to what Eric was saying about the timing, right? That's one of those things that just crop up because the timing's right, but maybe the idea's not there at all. Well, but there is timing that depends on a single, a single source, a single platform. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a lot of people build businesses on Facebook, and um, those haven't done that, that well because mm -hmm. Facebook is not a good partner. What do you mean by that? Facebook doesn't share. It, it, you know, they're in the sharing business, but they don't share. They, uh, <laughs> they share your data. <laughs> they, they collect my data en masse, and then they, they, they sell it to the highest bidder. Um, but I don't want to. I don't want to pile on Facebook. That, 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 but per se, is that if you're dependent on, on on one platform, and what you do is not transferable mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to others, then you you. You, you, you potentially going to run into a lot of problems. Yeah, there are a lot of these Me Too type of companies that, that just kind of crop up because they're already in existence and people think, oh, I, I got to go there as well. Um, I know that, Eric, you've said something that really struck me in the past, which is uh, VC investors in the US are too conservative. They don't embrace taking big risks the way that, say, Masayoshi son of SoftBank does, um, or investors in Asia do. do. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit more? What what do people here not do versus what you've seen investors in Asia do? Well, uh, let's see. So uh, the SoftBank Vision Fund is $100 billion. We've never seen anything close to that. I think the bigger VC funds have been a few billion dollars, nothing like $100 billion. If you look at the, the funding rounds that come out of China, um, you know, the, the next electric scooter company is raising uh, you know, $3 billion at a $30 billion valuation. Uh, it could be all smoke. And um, it, it, you have to suspend this belief to some degree in the sense that you have to believe that all tech-driven tech companies will be revalued upwards if, if this is correct. So I'm thinking that somewhere in the middle is where, where we should be making big bets mm -hmm. or bigger bets uh, on, on really big ideas um, and that, that, to some degree, in the United States, we um, we, we have become somewhat conservative, and um, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how many of these companies in Asia are actually going to come out the other way and have made money for their investors. Um, but but while they're doing this, they're, they're completely changing the mentality of how people think about the how large. Uh, these opportunities are. You know, we we've got to start to think about the world and not the United States. We've got to be, we've just got to think about bigger numbers because technology is in fact truly changing the world, and we haven't seen most of it yet. And perhaps people are not appreciating the scale to which that can happen. Yeah. Um, let's talk about exiting investments because as venture capitalists, that's ultimately what you need to do. Um, Ariana Huffington once said that you were a big believer in the IPO plan, that Huffington Post should not have been sold to AOL in 2011. Are you still convinced that that's the best exit strategy, IPO? Well, in the case of the Huffington Post, you know, then uh, Tumblr got sold for a billion dollars and uh, you know, uh, BuzzFeed got valued uh, well over a billion dollars. So, um, so I, feel, I feel that I was correct. Uh, that we should have waited and taken the company public. And, and whether we would have taken it public or sold it, I don't know. Um, uh, but it was a good deal. Everybody was very happy, and that's, that's what counts. Um, 
the IPO market is is uh, waking up a little bit. Uh, you know, it it's it's it used to be a few years ago that if you were not going to be the next Facebook and going out at billions of dollars, then you you should not even think about the IPO market. But what we've seen in the past few months is a number of companies, tech-driven companies, doing well, raising $150 million, $200 million at the valuation of $1 to $3 billion. And that's the way it should be. You know, the, 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 uh, the, the round of financing that comes after the Series D, let's say, after you've raised 50 or $75 million in your last round, should really be a public round. Um, and, and I believe that the public wants to own uh, stock in companies that are in technology that they all benefit from, that they understand, that they view, that they you know that they know about every day, uh, but they just don't have the the opportunity uh, to buy stock. And I think that we're being very timid. And to some degree, VCs have I think this has stopped in the past couple of years. But VCs have given poor advice uh, to companies by saying you can stay private as long as you want. There's so much money in the private markets. We'll continue to support you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they weren't really thinking about, um, you know, the, the, the not only the benefit to their own LPs, but the benefit to the company. The, the, the company gains a currency that they can do M&A with. Their employees uh, can start to trade on their stock options. Um, uh, they, they maintain independence. There's a lot of good things about going public that we need to go back and really kind of teach our companies as to why that's good. the short-termism that... that CEOs decry. They don't want to be held to quarterly conference calls and having to, having to uh, let you know what metrics you're, you're meeting on. I mean, Elon Musk's uh, analyst call this past uh, quarter is a perfect example of someone who gets really grumpy about being pressed on difficult questions. Yeah, but then you have Jeff Bezos, who has always said from the very beginning, I'm taking the long view, I'm changing things, uh, don't expect profits immediately, I'm going to reinvest, and people have believed that. But the other thing I would say is, listen, tough luck. That's the world, you know. You uh, so yes, you have to think about meeting your numbers. Well, what, what a concept, uh, <laughs> you know. Let's start to do that. And you, it doesn't mean that that you still can't be thinking long term, as long as you're directing um, your your message uh, in the right in the right way. Naveen, um, Catherine, how do you guys think about the IPO market? Does I know you guys are early stage, but does it factor into to how you proceed at all? I mean, we're. I mean, uh, it factors into the extent that we're VC, so we care about the exits and we're looking for the right exit strategy. Um, I mean, that certainly factors in. I think um, we see it as um, you know when we talk about it internally that now there just are more options than maybe there used to be. It seems to be more options available to companies. Um, both from obviously SoftBank and keeping it private being an option to to exit the company um, by having someone larger come in, as well as the IPO market. Um, I would say on the IPO front, and we talk about this quite a bit, and I believe it from my background, you know, having a path well beyond the IPO is something that's even more important now than it ever used to be, I guess I'd say. So knowing your product roadmap and making sure that you get set up so that you can actually execute, to Eric's point, across those milestones for your next five years post-IPO, I think is, is really important. Um, and uh, I think that includes having a product roadmap that shows that your vision can expand beyond that. Um, uh, but I, just to go back to the one comment made about IPOs and what it's like, I mean, I've obviously been at two public companies. 
Uh, and I think I mainly think of it as a leadership challenge. You have to be able to communicate internally to your employees what it means to be a public company. What does it mean when the stock market's perception of, of you changes the stock price uh, dramatically? And that's it's just a leadership point. Uh, and I think if you handle it as a leadership point, you can communicate to the company about where you're going long term, where you're going short term, and what's happening. Um, but it is another thing you end up needing to communicate on. It's another skill you need to it's learn and master eventually. What about you, Naveen? For us, I think we're still um, still a young firm. At Expo, we're only four years into it, about three and a half, four years worth of uh, companies so far. So we don't really think about IPOs quite yet. We don't really think about, we do think about exits. We do think about maturity of companies and stuff, but that's not a part of like how we actually evaluate companies and actually how we choose the ideas. If anything, for us, the thing that gets us excited is that we're, we're the first check-in, we're basically pre-seed, seed to an A, so can we get that right? If we get that right, and if we pick the right ideas, and we put the right time behind these things, I could totally see those things happening in the future. I want to rip up the script a little bit here, because uh, I just watched Silicon Valley. I finished the last season, and there was an episode, and sorry for anyone who has not finished season three, but there was an episode in which um, Pied Piper was considering and ended up executing on an ICO instead of going for a Series B <laughs> financing. Um, and how that's a threat to VCs. And I wondered what you guys think of that. I mean, is, is that something that crops up where some of the companies you're working with and the founders say, you know what, we don't actually need VCs. We can do this on our own. We'll, we'll, we'll go and I, we'll do it. We'll, we'll launch an ICO and we can pay for ourselves and we can figure this out on our own. I think, um, I think the way we think about it, and I, I'm sure a couple of other VCs also have echoed this and will continue to, the thing that VCs or firms like ours provide is not just the capital, right? It's the, it's the network, it's our experience, it's, uh, it's us getting into the weeds with you on things. Um, there's an example of a company that was going through a kind of an exit process about two years ago, and there were about two or three months where it was just a lot of work, and everyone on this team was just getting sick trying to figure this out. I was getting sick, it was like December, January, February, and I was there every day meeting with them and like doing one-on-ones and doing all those things. You don't get those things in an ICO. Right? It's just it's like fake money. You're fooling somebody else to give you this money, and then I don't know where it goes. TBD. Let's see what happens over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. But if you want all of those other things, there's still going to be a place for that. Whether that's venture capital as we know it now, or a new kind of firm in the future, I'm not sure. But that's gonna that's gonna stay around well, forever. Uh, not so long ago, it was crowdsourcing that was going to kill uh, the VC world. Um, uh, you know, you there's lots of money in the world. There's plenty of money. If, if you want money, you'll find it. Uh, the, 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 all, the question is, what kind of money do you want? Um, it's really hard to build a company. Uh, we, what we do, we do it over and over again. We fund the company at the seed level. Uh, we take them to hopefully a successful Series A. They only have 18 months, typically. In that 18 months, you have one year uh, to establish yourself in the marketplace with the kind of metrics uh, that will attract a top-tier VC, makes a big difference between working with a top-tier VC and others. Um, so you have one year. Uh, and during that one year, um, you, you, you've got to have the focus. And if you don't have the right investors around the table who are going to be able to, that you, hopefully you'll trust, that you'll listen to, who are going to be able to say, you know, you know, buying customers at this stage of your company is not a good idea. If, it's, if your product is not going viral, there's something wrong, let's fix the product. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that kind of advice, um, you, you're going to basically spend the money, a year will be there, and nobody else will going to want to fund you later. Maybe you could do a, a second ICO. 
Uh, but chances are that ICOs will probably not exist in the form that they are today uh, in, in a couple of years. Um, you know, he, increasingly, I hear people saying, well, you know, I would do an ICO, but I don't really want to go to jail. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, I think we fall in the same camp as these discussions. It's about the value that investors brings versus just the money. I think, uh, obviously, to that point about if I do an ICO, I might go to jail. Uh, there's a lot of discussions about, uh, for example, people raising notes and, and that being a way to give VC money, but then doing an ICO and convertible notes. It's not totally clear how they convert if you don't do a price round. So I actually think there's a lot of structural challenges that are still not worked out in this market that make it challenging because you can then go do an ICO, and that's just one example. Okay, so it doesn't get resolved in 30 minutes is, is uh, the lesson here. All right, let's uh, wrap up and, and give our final thoughts here before we open up to the audience because I know there's probably a lot of questions out there. Um, what's the number one mistake that founders make from, from your years of experience, from what you've seen and based as an, as an operator, former operator, and Naveen, to, to what you're trying to build right now with young companies, what's a mistake that commonly gets made time after time and you know, to some extent, you have to just let people make the mistake, but in other times, you really try to discourage people from, from following through on it. Naveen, why don't we start with you? Um, yeah, so <clears throat> I actually like to think that I have probably three or four different rules. Because I'm so embedded in all the teams internally at Expo, not just sitting in another office and, uh, and just focused on my spreadsheets, I actually wear different hats throughout, throughout my day. So sometimes I'm a coach. I'm kind of sitting with you and thinking through the psychology of building companies and decisions and all this stuff. Sometimes I'm an investor. And I'm just thinking about numbers, and I'll tell you something. And sometimes I'm just operator. I'm sitting with you as a co-founder, or you know, team team lead, or sub team lead, or something like that. And I'm just trying to help you with a problem. So in each one of those moments, I think the biggest mistake is uh, founders don't listen. Entre when entrepreneurs don't listen and take feedback and use it properly, that's when things go wrong. So if you don't listen to your customers, right there, you're not building the right thing, right? So as a product person, that's the number one thing you're going to get wrong, probably. So really, it doesn't matter the tools or the amount of money you have. If you don't listen to customers, you're going to fail. If you don't listen to investors, you're going to fail. If you don't listen to your own team and your own staff, and they're telling you, hey, this is not the type of culture we want, you're going to fail. So I think, hands down, uh, hands down, yeah, I think that would, that would be the number one for me. Catherine? Um, I might cheat with two. But Please. The, the number one to me is hiring. Um, and what I mean by that is I find that people aren't nearly thoughtful enough about their hiring process. So if you look at other processes in a company, let's just take marketing and thinking about what's the message and the branding and the whole roadmap that goes before some campaign ships or launches, it's much more thoughtful than what I typically see for hiring, and this is across any company. So really actually laying out all the criteria and the roles, force ranking those criteria, circulating with that team before you even see the first candidate circulating that, doing a ideally looking at people's different profiles before you go and interview them. Um, th there's just a lot of steps that I find that most people are not thoughtful about that. And I'm a personal big believer that hiring is some of, is, is probably the biggest mistake you make if you make it. Because you hire the wrong person. Most people take a while to push someone out if it's the wrong person. And then the same process starts all again. So it ends up being a, really like a triple, if not 10x negative on a company if you hire the wrong person. So knowing that, you can just be a lot more diligent. That's my one. My two, I agree with you. The thing that I also believe in is uh, write down your next steps and confirm with, with a group. It's the simplest thing. I find that most people don't do this. Um, and in any forum, in a meeting, in a, you know, even with a candidate that's coming in, meeting with your investors, okay, my three takeaways were X, Y, Z. Do we all agree? Did I internalize those the same way? And it's because of the listing people. People leave a conversation with a wildly different set of next steps or assumptions. It's so simple just to say them and then agree and then leave. That, that requires a discipline. Yeah. Eric? 
Um, well, I'm just going to reinforce um, what my colleagues here are saying. The majority of the, the main reason, so in 65% of the cases, uh, why when we look at why our companies have failed, it's related to people. And it's, got, it's a wide variety of things. One is uh, the founders are not good listeners, uh, and um, the founders uh, are not getting along. Um, they don't hire uh, the best people. They don't hire above themselves people who are better at what they should be doing. Um, uh, and they, they don't really uh, instill a, a proper culture. So, and there's other reasons, but it all, it's really mostly people-related. Very, very rarely is it because the market didn't work out or uh, you know, because the pricing was wrong or whatever it was. It's mostly people. It's about managing people. Yeah. And, being, and being, being a leader, uh, understanding that you're, it's, a, it's teamwork, uh, that you have to be a good listener, uh, and you have to, you, you, you know, it, when I grew up in business, it used, to, it used to be managing by walking around, which people don't talk about anymore. But it's, it's basically kind of looking for trouble. You, 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 you've got a plan, you're executing your plan, and you, you're out in the field, you're in your, among your team, and you're looking for the areas of weakness uh, where people are not doing the right job, you're not giving them the right direction, Etc. And you're going to fix that because if you let that fester, it's going to become a main, a main problem. So you're poking and prodding constantly. Yes. yes. And is that something that founders don't value enough? They they overestimate their own ability to do that, or they just don't take it seriously enough? Both, both, or they just don't know why they, they it doesn't occur to them that they should be doing that. Okay, got it. All right, I want to thank our panelists. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube. <laughs>